Welcome to the Networking with Plants in the Anthropocene podcast. Today we're joined with the wonderful Dr. Emma Trott from Leeds. Welcome, Emma. Hi, Kate. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Thank you for joining us. I'm so excited to hear about your work. Um, would you mind starting by introducing yourself? Yeah, thanks. And, and I'm really excited about this as well. I'm an early career researcher, postdoc, uh, officially called a teaching fellow at the University of Leeds in the UK. And my work is across the environmental humanities and the medical humanities. And I've got a particular interest in eco-criticism, eco-poetry, and through that, all kinds of creaturely life, but particularly plants. And so that's why I've got this interest in your network and in this podcast. Wonderful. Um, can you give us a little bit of a picture of your relationship with plants? Have plants kind of always been something that were in your family um, or in your community growing up? What what are some of your kind of histories with plants? It's such an interesting question and it could send me in so many different directions, but what, what immediately comes up is that both my mum and my grandmother, maternal grandmother, were really, really keen gardeners and were so engaged with what they had going on out the back door in North London. But also my granny had a place in Hertfordshire where there was three quarters of an acre and had a really amazing, diverse bit of land with all kinds of different things going on. And so I definitely think of the care that they took when they were shaping what was going on out there when I was little my mum would get me and my sister out in the veggie patch and I've got memories of being really young and growing carrots and peas and that fascination you know where you see what's produced after you planted some seeds a few months ago when you're that young that's definitely stayed with me I now have a, a bit of a more complex relationship with gardening, which I think I'm still working out and is maybe taking me in a bit of a different direction, despite all of that respect that I have for, for their approach, where now I really love being in the garden and I really love working with plants and seeing what's going on. But I also have quite an instinctual aversion to overmanagement and I I have this this aversion is to, to this aestheticization of plants that's so pervasive in our culture. And I'm not at all saying that I'm innocent of that. I'm not. I think flowers are lovely. I often have a bunch on my kitchen table. I love the way gardens can look when people are really taking care of them. But I also as I said, I, yeah, I do. I'm still sort of working through these really complex feelings that I have about what it means to take control over a space and to decide which plants should and shouldn't be there based on my preference, whether that's for the aesthetics or whether that's, you know, have a rosemary bush to use in cooking, all of these things. And I... I'm working through what, what the ethics of that kind of relationship might be. And, and now at the same time, the garden I mean I live near this this long wooded valley and all the vegetation around the area is really quite lush you know as soon as spring hits you turn around and five minutes later the garden's just gone boom and if I didn't 
keep on top of the nettles and all the wildflowers I mean the dandelions it's not an exaggeration to say that I have hundreds in my garden all over the lawn you know and and you know what a dandelion's like once it's got root that's never coming out so you know and there's all the fox and cubs as well yeah basically turn around and a minute later it's just exploded and if I didn't keep on top of that I would live in a jungle I wouldn't be able to even step out the back door and so you know, I also try to not be naive about this and to accept that it's okay to have some kind of management, have some some kind of interaction from that perspective and that I need to make my garden into a place where I can enjoy it. But I guess what I'm saying is that I try to do that by means of creating a physical space where I can also be without prescribing what I think it is that a garden should look like or, or should be. And I guess I, I enjoy a little bit of the, the wildness. Definitely. That resonates with me. A few years ago, I was taking, I visited my parents' home for the summer and I was so excited to set up a garden. And then the burdock started coming in and all of these kind of like, at the time I was thinking that they were native. I haven't looked into them that much, but like burdock is really useful for a lot of things. And I'm like, why am I moving burdock for cucumbers and <laughs> all of these different things? And it really is. It's fascinating. Like the different ethical questions that, you know, come up while we're doing these really practical things like gardening. Mm, it is exactly. And I also, of course, want to be alive to the pleasures in that and what it does bring to you last year I planted some alliums in a pot they've come up again this year both years I've now dried them and I put them up in the house and there are pleasures in that which I think are meaningful beyond the aesthetics and in the way of working with the hands and the vegetation I think there's something important about that so I I don't want to sound like I'm dismissive and I I do have great respect for people who have these gorgeous gardens one of my neighbors for example I look out the window you know it's amazing what what they've done in there and it's it's just different from my approach I guess that that's what I'd emphasize yeah I, I don't feel like I've worked it out or solved it but it's, it's kind of an interesting process of of questioning those those assumptions that we're that we're given isn't it definitely um and that kind of dovetails into nicely talking about like working with plants and working with the garden. How would you describe some of your work beyond garden and outdoor spaces? Um, what is your work with plants? What do you do and what do they do? So yeah, what do I do and what do they do? Really nice way of phrasing it. So I'm a literary scholar. I'm in the School of English and most of my work till now has been on poetry contemporary poetry stuff from the last 50 years really or you know maybe 60 70 but yeah post-war anyway and so on poetry and poetics and I've got a particular interest in plant poetry and it's one of the ways of thinking through questions around plant being and plant agency I've been reading and, and working on plant poetry for over 10 years now when I started doing that critical plant studies, you know, this now really burgeoning field, you know, wasn't really a thing. But I've since then really benefited from what what is called the vegetal turn, you know, in, in arts and philosophy and criticism, this, this move towards looking back at plants. And yeah, so I've really benefited from 
other scholars working from a literary perspective, but also from philosophy, from visual arts, you know, all these other different ways. And of course, it thinking about plants connects to these really important questions of our time. The Anthropocene, of course, is in the title of the podcast. Plants are so relevant to how we think about food, about climate change, about environmental degradation and all those really crucial questions. And they are absolutely there when I work with plants. But actually, what I'm interested in most is in creaturely life, in, as I said, plant being, in what the experience of a plant might be like. I'm not pretending that I know that or that any human knows that, but how we might move towards an understanding of that and how we might start to recognize a bit more of what's so not only what's so fascinating about them but what might be some correspondences with human being again without writing out what is alien about them you know which of course myriad things but and that's something to celebrate as well but perhaps there are many ways because of this cultural prejudice that we have against plants where they're the the inanimate unfeeling unsensing boring backdrop to animal and human life and the animals and humans are where the soul is or where intelligence is is where consciousness is and in this nascent field of scientific field of plant neurobiology plant intelligence as you know we're discovering so many things about plant memory about the ways they communicate with each other, about the way they pass down experiences to subsequent generations of plants, or, you know, or, or to other groups of plants around them. And obviously, you know, the question about what even is consciousness, well, that hasn't even been answered yet, has it? And there's all kinds of fascinating philosophical debates about that too. But I do kind of, and, and I don't, I don't have an answer either, but I'm interested at what point might we start realistically and not in a kind of naive creative way but actually ascribe consciousness to plants what would it take for for that to happen obviously a lot of this is countering what what has commonly been called plant blindness that tendency to overlook plants to not pay them attention to think they're boring I'm I'm really glad that now there seems to be a move away from that term plant blindness. You know, it's it's a disability metaphor, it's ableist, it suggests that blindness is always and only a bad thing, and that it's something to be cured. And of course, in that way would would directly impact the ways that we all encounter people who are blind. You know, so um I, th- I think it's Catherine Parsley, isn't it, in a fantastic example of nominative determinism, Catherine Parsley writing about plants. She's come up with this term plant awareness disparity, which she makes a very good case for as a replacement for plant blindness. But that that concept and, you know, and, and the original concept of plant blindness came about through thinking about education and how this this filters into education, apparently kids at school are much more likely to remember the names of animals than plants even when from a linguistic perspective the names are just as easy as the others you know you know there's all kinds of interesting things there and in terms of education it's it's really important so I do see the work that I'm doing in reading poetry to be related to those kinds of ethical or philosophical questions relating to plants I'm also fascinated by language I mean every every bit of work that I've done really it always seems to come back to metaphor 
and to the relationship between the metaphor for the thing and the thing itself and how those things relate to each other. One of the questions that I'm interested in when it comes to creaturely life and which specifically relates to language and to literature is to the question of voicing the non-human other. To what extent can we represent the experience or the voice of a plant, an animal? And, you know, actually you can start to relate this to other human beings as well, um, whether they have a different language from the writer or whether they simply have a different level of experience. But I'm particularly interested in terms of that those non-human creatures and in so many ways the imagination creativity art can really get us closer to an understanding of what that experience might be like but at the same time we're always limited by the fact that language is a human construct that's our specifically human way of relating to each other and communicating with each other so the kind of the closer you get the more you realize how far you are and by getting close in that way you're also setting up those definitive blocks to be able to fully understand that and I find that really really fascinating because it's so important in terms of well you know from an empathetic perspective to be able to try and do that but as I said it, it also fascinates me from someone who loves language I've been thinking about moss quite a bit over the last few days because of a couple of books that I'm reading, actually not for work, just for interest. But one of them is Guy Shrobsoul's book, The Lost Rainforests of Britain, about these amazing forests, mostly on the west coast of the UK, that have these very, very humid oceanic climates. And he calls them temperate rainforests. And... I mean, actually, I was having a conversation with a friend at the weekend about uh, who, she's a tree conservationist. She was saying that actually within those circles, this book's a bit controversial because his definitions of what a rainforest is don't necessarily align with, you know, the people. But, but you know, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I I have no skin in that game, really. And it, and, and it is otherwise a, a really interesting book. But anyway, at the moment I'm reading the bit where he's talking about bryophytes, about mosses and lichens, and he very evocatively visually describes what they all look like in their weird kind of alien-y carpety forms and I'm also reading Daisy Hildyard's novel Emergency at the moment have you read it no I haven't read it yet it's just some of the writing is astonishing it's um and you know actually despite the name it's a really joyful novel at least so far I'm about halfway through there's a description of moss in there which really captured me where where the the child narrator's describing seeing it on the side of a house and how it's responded to water gushing out of a pipe and it crept along the the gaps between the bricks and she describes something about its time frame and how different the moss's time frame is from hers and then she she describes it as something like it's it's alien periods of torpor and spreading you know suggesting when the water comes then it kind of goes boom and spreads all over the place and the rest of the time it's you know and, and I think I just thought that was such an incredible way of describing it because she is getting to to that problem one of the things that does produce the plant awareness disparity that they just have a very different time frame from us they move much slower you know they they operate differently and it's 
harder for us to to relate to them in that way but you know and that alienness as well uses the word alien is so good but I also thought it was fascinating because torpor you know to be in a state of torpor well you know, can you really say that a moss is essentially lethargic? I mean, I, I don't know, you know, may, maybe they are sometimes, you know, maybe they have days where they're like, can't be bothered to grow today, I'm just going to hang. I have no idea. But at the same time, it, it seems like a human concept, doesn't it, that's being imposed on them. And this really gets to another of the really, really important I think debates within eco-criticism and certainly something that's preoccupied me in my own research about anthropomorphism and the extent to which that is or is not a valuable thing to do. Anthropomorphism, obviously, it, it is that way of, you know, kind of morphing the non-human other in terms of your human ideas, you know, identifying human constructs in that non-human creature. And I think for a while it was it was a bit of a dirty word. It was seen as something that you really shouldn't do. You should be trying to meet this creature on its own terms. And of course, I, I recognise and respect all that. But I think now there's increasingly a, a sense that we can be a bit more nuanced than that. And that actually anthropomorphism is not the same as anthropocentrism, where the human is the most important thing. And that actually, certainly in some of the poetry that I've been working on, I, I've identified what I see more as a kind of phytocentrism, you know, where the plant is being put in the centre. But that doesn't mean that there is no anthropomorphism. It doesn't mean there's nothing there. And in fact, I think that in writing about plants, anthropomorphism might be a really valuable and perhaps even essential thing because it has that honesty about the human observer being there and about it's a, it's a self-reflexive way of showing awareness of language, of, of the material of language as a human thing through which this is being described. If you have a poem that writes about a plant that's trying to pretend that the human voice isn't there, that's painting it almost in a way that doesn't ask you to draw attention to the materials by which it's being produced, then to me there's almost a kind of dishonesty there because that's not possible. We can't write out the human and we can't pretend that we're not there. And of course, that's in language, but that's also even when we're just walking around perceiving things through our senses, we're still filtering all of that. And the idea that we can get any kind of objective knowledge of a plant, you know, is frankly, it's just nonsense, isn't it? And so for me, I think anthropomorphism, and I think that's what, what Daisy Hildyard does so well in that particular line is really acknowledge that and and actually that you know that's much more broadly throughout the novel as well the whole novel is predicated on this deep understanding of ecology on the sense that everything is inter interconnected and the way the way that she weaves all of that together where this experience of the child narrator is part of it and the pollution from the quarry or the pesticide spraying that's all treated or, or kind of understood to be on the same material level as when she's describing the kestrels or the anemones or anything um but yeah so quite a long answer but the, those questions around the human presence in in the poetry has become really central for me and most of my work on plant poetry so far has been on this English poet John Silkin who was born in 1930 he died in 97 he was born in London. He he lived and worked in Leeds for quite a while. 
and he was a very very interesting guy and you know he was a socialist he was Jewish though not traditional about his theism and he founded this wonderful magazine called Stand which is still published from Leeds and he wrote this group of poems called the flower poems which were inspired by wildflowers growing in the front of his garden on this busy main road in North Leeds and each poem looks at a different flower he's he's also published this really short prose note note on flower poems he calls it which he published with them and and in it he describes what he was trying to do with that project about how he was trying to about how their encounters these poems are encounters between human and flower and that he's not trying to write out the human he also says that he's trying to to draw human life towards the plant, you know, rather than the other way around in the way that, of course, so often in poetry, flowers, you know, plants, but flowers especially have been metaphors, have represented things, have been symbols for things. He's saying he's absolutely not doing that. And the flowers, are often they're really unpleasant. You know, he, he doesn't write out a lot of what, you know, sometimes they smell weird. Sometimes they're not that nice to look at. He sometimes they have this kind of predatory sexuality and he he describes it in this language that we're much more commonly used to identifying with animals you know this really um they have furry bodies and they move you know all of these things that you think of in writing about animals he writes about them in plants and they're from an ethical perspective I think just incredibly rich and fascinating but what well, one thing that interests me is in the note he said he says, I'm not trying to anthropomorphize the flower. But then there are bits in the poems where there is anthropomorphism, you know, and so I find even that in itself, that that resistance to the idea of doing it, the sense that it's a dirty thing to do, that it's wrong, but then he does it. And what he produces is something where we get to understand what an encounter between it a poet and a flower might be like that's what we get from them we don't get an objective sense of what the flower is but that's not it's not really possible you know so so it's all about encounter basically yeah that's really fascinating and I like your terminology of course since you work so much with language it makes sense that it's like creaturely that's something that is a person outside of some of this work, like I just so frequently associate with like other animals, you know, but to think of plants like creaturely is really interesting. Exactly, exactly. And, and Silken does describe the flowers as creatures. And yeah, I think it's a, an interesting reminder that for all the differences and all the ways that plants and animals are vastly contrasting with each other there are also points of connection and once you really start looking into it those differences just start to dissolve just a little bit definitely I think it's one of the strengths a bit of critical plant studies because you also have all these different disciplines kind of working together but I really love the way you describe poetry and language arts as something that you that offers a different perspective because I'm coming from philosophy mm. especially like western philosophy where you try and like I don't know my mom says that my writing has gotten much worse because it's gotten more technical <laughs> less expensive <laughs> for the academic um 
training through the academic training, but that there are things that poetry can pick up on mm. about the way a plant is being and its connection to kind of how humans are experiencing that in a different way. Yeah, exactly. And that's another really important thing that silken does where the flowers are there within, as you say, the, the human realm as well, the human concerns, you know, silken, he doesn't want to live in a world where there's no humans. He doesn't want to write them out and pay attention to the flower doesn't mean you that you don't also care about the humans. I mean, one of the poems in the collection, maybe one of the most challenging ones, it's called Milkmaids or Ladies Smog. And it describes these flowers advancing and then they come up again, the barbed wire of what we understand as a concentration camp. And we see this encounter where the plants and the prisoners are looking at each other through this fence and it's I've just been talking about encounter and how important that is and so we see that these different faces and there's a description then of it says that this trauma that the flowers witness is absorbed and then is passed down to their children and of course children that's not the way we describe new plants but that that's kind of part of the poetic license and you know and an example of what I was saying about the anthropomorphism that is there in the poems but so that idea of inherited trauma is that is Silken suggesting not only that atrocity is inscribed in the places where it's happened in the land in the plants that are there but is he also suggesting that inherited trauma might not only be within human lineages but is it in some way a multi-species concern? My, you know, I, I don't know from a from a cellular perspective, but um, I definitely think it's a really interesting idea. And elsewhere, Silken, as I said, he was a socialist. He was interested in creating a kind of egalitarian state. And he's, I think, arguing for the creation of a multi-species egalitarian state where removing some of that injustice, oppression, power imbalance between humans and other creatures, in this case, particularly plants, that maybe that is a model for how we can do it within human societies or vice versa. But perhaps all of these power things these intersect and that that's certainly a, a really interested me in my work, the way that particular kinds of oppression regarding non-human creatures intersect with other human cultural systems of power, whether that's race or disability, class, so on. Networking with plants in the Anthropocene is really interested in education. And um, one of our areas that we'd like to explore further soon is kind of compiling educational resources for people who are interested. Um, and many of our members are academics. And so we have a lot of resources kind of collectively already. Um, and I was wondering if you consider your work um, as a teacher, do you consider yourself a student? And what do you think the role of education is? when we're thinking about connecting with plants? Mm, interesting question. 
Yeah, I've taught Silken, for example, at both undergraduate and also to secondary school students through education engagement. Here's what being at university might be like type type events. And so, of course, a lot of what I've done in those sessions, which have been within the context of literary studies, of English studies, a lot of what I've tried to do is to explore the language, to look at the ways that metaphor can be used, the way that the poem is constructed in order to achieve a certain effect. And often with Silken, I mean, I don't know if I mentioned, but some of Silken's flower poems, they're quite weird poems, you know, and they're quite off-putting in a way in places. And I really enjoy teaching that because because of what I was saying about how it challenges those preconceptions about what a flower poem is likely to be. And so I think if there are ways of teaching that are able to challenge or it doesn't have to be a challenge obviously that can sound slightly overly combative but at least expand or stretch a student's understanding both of poetry and language and of the plants and of the ethical considerations that might be relevant there if there's material that we can use and ways of reading that are able to work on both of those both of those planes at the same time or to kind of see how actually they're really the same plane because the ways that language is operating is 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 everything in it if that makes sense go go it goes back again doesn't it to plant awareness disparity that most people and obviously this isn't a criticism of, of anyone at all and it counts for adults as well as children but just the way that our culture functions is to privilege animals and of course certain types of animals to the detriment of many other creatures particularly plants and there's an understanding that that we can kind of do whatever we want to plants I mean actually yesterday I mean it, a few years ago now I read Michael Marder's essay is it ethical to eat plants and I was actually looking over it again yesterday for something that I was working on such an interesting essay and you're, you're nodding I think you know it and just just for the listeners in it he seeks to answer that question is it ethical to eat plants and starts with the premise he quotes Peter Singer and he says okay we can we can understand the concept that we could just vastly reduce the suffering in the world by stopping farming animals Obviously, people have different feelings about that, but but that's kind of a concept that a lot of people can can understand, even if not fully get on board with. But then he says, well, yes, but also we can't do that and then say, then we'll just do whatever we want to the vegetation, to the plants and the vegetables and the fruits and so on. And so what he ends up arguing for is something that is really important in relation to plant ethics, but I think is important to environmental ethics much more broadly as well, in that it's a kind of care and attentiveness and thoughtfulness that he's advocating for, rather than a mindless consumption to be thinking, asking us to think about and to reflect on the ways that we encounter with plants, even while we're essentially arguably doing them an act of violence by eating them so I think those nuances and those kinds of questions are so important and of course just aren't things that 
commonly get discussed. Yes, how do students react to some of those kind of thinking about plants differently in your experience? Generally, they're really open to it. I find that generally with the students I've encountered that they are really ready to be challenged that to you know and of course some of them have thought about this stuff before I'm not saying none of them have ever considered this and it's all totally new and but so some of them it it makes a kind of instinctive sense some of them obviously it really appeals to some of them some of them would find the poems aesthetically a bit off-putting that's understandable I have taught other poetry on plants other than Silken, but because he's such an interest of mine, Silken's the one who always brings to mind when I'm talking about this. So I think I think people are really open to it. And of course, certainly the Gen Zs who are really alert to the environmental crisis, really alert, possibly even more so, you know, I'm a millennial and my generation's certainly concerned about it. And of course, I know that older generations are as well, but, you know, for the Gen Zs, it's it's hyper awareness of it. And so I think any ways of looking at this kind of thing, you know, becomes important to them. But also they get, they seem to get very, very interested by the ways that these questions around plant being or plant ethics intersect with those other systems of power. They're really up for critiquing humanism, essentially. You know, we don't always put it in those terms, but they're really up for critiquing those systems of injustice that they've inherited without ever actually saying that they wanted anything to do with it. For example, I've recently been teaching a bit this great poem by African-American poet Talias Moss called Interpretation of a Poem by Frost. I don't know if you know it. Um, so it takes as a starting point Frost stopping by the woods on a snowy evening. It's an absolutely gorgeous poem where it describes a figure, presumably a man on horseback, going home, stops by the woods. It's snowy, has a look round, has some thoughts, and then carries on their way. And Talios Moss reinterprets this to say, as a white man riding around in a snowy woodland, lovely. What if you're a young black girl? It seems like, and this is, you know, Jim Crow is mentioned explicitly. So, so we know that it's with it during the era of Jim Crow laws and it totally reimagines that experience. And then it does really clever things around the bark of the tree and the, the darkness of the bark and the whiteness of the snow. And, and, you know, it's, it's, I wouldn't say that it's a poem about plant being it's not, but it's also a poem where plant is not merely a metaphor and where it's actually has agency within the poem, that it is it is there and it is teaching us something really important. And so increasing the understanding of the ways that environmental crisis intersects with all these other kinds of injustice, that's something that seems really important to them and is really alive to them and certainly gives me a kind of hope for for how as a community we we might go on to challenge some of these these really really fundamental things
do you have a favorite plant? And if so, what is it? Generally, I don't really like choosing a favorite anything. I always seem to come up with two or three, not always, but often come up with two or three. I do actually have a favorite flower, which is daffodil. And I love them. For me, I've always loved them. They come out at the time of year when, you know, spring's my favorite season. All of those dark months are ending and you've got so many months stretching ahead of you of light essentially it's my birthday at that time of year and they always make me think of my mum as well so you know love daffodils but actually a plant that's really been at the forefront of my mind recently is wild garlic and so this is because I was in Australia in January and staying at my godfather's on the east coast just outside Byron Bay and I've been having some health issues and so Robert, my godfather said hey I've got this friend who does this um, you know, kind of alternative healing. Why don't we go have a chat to him? So I went to have a chat to him and he said, not going to heal the problems, but we might come to an understanding of why what's happening is happening. So I said, okay, cool, let's go. And so he took me through this incredible experience where I was lying down and, you know, eyes closed and he was essentially guiding me through this kind of experience and you know it wasn't it wasn't a plant medicine experience you know it, it wasn't that I'd taken something I hadn't taken anything it was all brought about by first the visualizations that he was asking me to do and then just the kind of you know gentle questions asking me you know okay what can you see you know it starts with me doing these light visualizations and I have I have had experiences similar to this before they're not exactly the same and at the beginning, I'm often thinking, is anything going to happen? Am I just going to be lying here really conscious for what will come to feel like a really long hour? But and then suddenly something just switches. And, uh, you know, I, I won't tell you all the details. It would take a really long time. But I go through this whole really profound and powerful visual physical experience. And towards the end, then, you know, after all these different wild things had happened he then asked me to take myself out of that situation imagine I was at a waterfall so I did and I imagined that I was at Janet's Foss which is this waterfall near Malham in North Yorkshire and then you know he just asked these very kind of gentle questions you know oh you know is there anyone or anything there that you see and I turn around and there's this bank of wild garlic kind of waving almost like loads of little tongues and and any that that then became part of this really important experience you know a very spiritual experience even though I don't yet fully know exactly how to process everything that happened and exactly what was going on but anyway the the wild garlic played a role in that kind of journey which ended up in a real increased self-understanding for me and some really powerful and useful realizations and I can still see so many of those images you know it, it was a very profound experience and a very special one even as I say I don't necessarily have the language or the understanding to know exactly what happened if you know what I mean but yeah and I love wild garlic anyway I every year I love in all those gorgeous wooded areas around Yorkshire where I live, just these carpets of it. And 
picking it and making pesto and um actually my dear friend Erica was telling me she she's been picking the buds and then pickling them which apparently is a great thing to do didn't manage to do it this year but I hope I will next year and and of course the fact that it is a plant that I love seeing but that also I engage with through that act of eating is is interesting as I said I'm thinking through all these intellectual ideas about how we how we ethically eat plants and so it yeah kind of taps into that as well so I wouldn't say wild garlic will be my favorite forever but at the moment it's yeah it's meaning things to me that's really fascinating thank you for sharing that experience it's it reminds me a bit of uh, Monica Gagliano's discussion of some of her experiences with plants that do kind of push those boundaries of like what is going on and it does take a lot of time to like figure out why things are showing up (laughs) in different places for us yeah yeah totally I mean exactly right yeah Monica Gaglani you know I've, I've read quite a lot of her work and it's really interesting and um she yeah she she's in touch with my sister actually my sister has a podcast called going conscious and she's talked to Monica Gagliano on it but yeah I've I've read her work and I yeah really really respect that way that that yeah as you say she encounters those different different ways of being with them which plants give you hope it would be trees rather than other forms of plants I don't have anything more than a very subjective impressionistic answer to this you know part of me wishes that my my instinctive response had some kind of rational basis to it about sustainability but it doesn't I think something about the scale of them and something about the time frame again to come back to that idea I find very calming and I mean actually you know I was talking about Daisy Hildyard and the moss and that's something she says about that that bit of moss that it that, that you know for the narrator that it build filter with this deep sense of calm and that's something I experience around trees and and I think it is just as that narrator says to do with the time frame and that sense of things being slowed down but as I said also of of the scale so yeah, a very subjective response, but that would that would be it. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the Networking with Plants in the Anthropocene podcast. You've been a delight to talk with, um, and I hope we can chat more in upcoming, you know, months or years as more of your work um, on plants comes out. Yeah, I hope we can chat more soon as well. It's been really lovely. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Hope to see you again soon. Yes, definitely. Um, Thank you for joining us on this episode of Networking with Plants in the Anthropocene. If you're interested in looking into our group more, you can find us at networkingwithplants.org or email us at networkingwithplants at gmail.com. Until next time, go out and have some interactions with plants. Take care.
The music piece is kindly offered to us by artist Mylise. Mylise is a sonic artist, immersive ecology designer, and clean energy ambassador. Merging art and technology, she creates music experiences that express the voices of plants and the other inhabitants of the earth. 